On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to Zach Sims, founder and CEO of Codecademy. You ended up starting this, though, after you were, I think, a political science major at Columbia. Very impressive. But for three years, and then you dropped out. That, I mean, like, what's up with that? I mean, that's like $150,000, right, of tuition. It's like all this time and effort. Like, why not just finish it out? Like, what was so appealing? Like, what what happened? What was that aha moment that you're like, you know what? This is the thing, and I got to go focus on this new thing. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show produced by Dave Gerhardt. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot, and I'm joined today by Zach Sims, the co-founder and CEO of Codecademy. Zach, thanks a ton for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, now, so uh, Codecademy, I think the name sort of says what it is, but why don't you give us the short, like, what is it? Absolutely. So Codecademy teaches, uh, at this point, more than 25 million people all around the world the skills they need to find jobs in a modern economy. So when we started, that meant we, we just taught basic programming online in an interactive, easy-to-use, fun way. Uh, and over time, we've expanded from just teaching basic programming to now teaching people everything they need uh, to find a job and use technology to make more money and uh, put food on the plates of their family. So I, so I, some somebody who's a marketer, you know, not super smart, could jump in and like learn some new skills, and I could go try to become a developer or something like that at a company. Absolutely. So I think there's a combination of trying to become a good developer and also just learning independently. Um, skills that you can use on a job that is not development centric. Interesting. Tell us more about that. So I think something like uh, a marketer or someone like a designer or even sometimes people that are um, in jobs where they talk to programmers. Uh, So we've seen a lot of product managers do this, a lot of people at finance companies that end up working with algorithmic traders and want to understand better uh, how everything works. They're using coding as a means to understand uh, how their industries are shifting and being changed. And they're also using programming to kind of make little small hacks here and there as well. Okay, cool. That makes uh, a ton of sense. Uh, 25 million people's a ton. Now, yeah. you ended up starting this, though, after you were, a, I think, a political science major at Columbia. Very impressive. Right. But for three years, and then you dropped out. That, I mean, like, what's up with that? I mean, that's like $150,000, right, of tuition. It's like all this time and effort. Like, why not just finish it out? Like, what was so appealing? Like, what what happened? What was that aha moment that you're like, you know what? This is the thing, and I got to go focus on this new thing. You know, so I, I think there are times where you really discover something that you think can have a tremendous impact and also something that, that's really relevant. And, and this was one of those times for me uh, with Code Academy while I was in school. I worked with my co-founder, Ryan, while I was in school. We saw this massive spread between the skills that were taught in uh, formal educational institutions and the skills that were needed for people to find jobs. And we wanted to fix this problem uh, for the people that we were in school with or ourselves. Uh, I, as a political science major, knew the pain of that. Um, and we really felt like it couldn't wait. And, and once we started working on Code Academy and after we launched it and started seeing the impact we could have 
really hooked on continuing to do this and, and really make this you know the focus of, of our lives. So okay, now what? Talk to us more about that problem. Like you know, for for decades, people have learned how to let's just take the problem of coding, right? Have learned how to code from books. In fact, there's a huge company, Tim O'Reilly's company, right? O'Reilly Media, that is a yeah. big company, and they publish all those books with like the different animals on the covers. And they have all these conferences and all this stuff. Huge company, very successful. Like what 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 doesn't work about that? Like what was this inspiration for this sort of new way of thinking about things? Yeah, I think um, I was teaching myself to program. And my co-founder, Ryan, for a while, had actually taught tons of people to program uh, at Columbia while starting um, an organization to help new people learn to code. And, and so, you know, I, I think we wanted to teach people in the easiest way for consumers to learn, which is to learn by doing, to build real-life important projects, and to build with other people, and as well as to get immediate feedback. And we felt like we could do that best um, with a product like Code Academy. And so, and let's talk a little bit more about the number of people that are interested in this. So, you know, it's obviously grown very fast to some huge numbers. You talked about 25 million people. What Do you feel like all of that is like, hey, there were 25 million people that were trying to learn to code beforehand? Or do you feel like something has been changing in the world and that more people are all of a sudden waking up and saying, you know what, this is something that I want to learn? Um, you know, I think we had a thesis at the time that we were teaching people something that they did want to learn, and oftentimes they just didn't know that yet. Uh, and I think that's really what we've seen is, you know, four years ago, going on four years ago when we started the company, people told us uh, there aren't that many people that want to learn to program. Programming is just for programmers. And really, we don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, it's funny. I have this, uh, I always explain it that sort of like, you know, of course you'd want to learn a foreign language, right? And we have this sort of foreign language requirement in, you know, a lot of schools, high schools, things like that. I almost feel like computer science or, you know, a computer language should qualify to meet that requirement, right? I mean, you're certainly not interacting or communicating with other humans necessarily, but there's more devices out there, right, than humans now. And I, I, I almost feel like if we were to sort of as a society kind of rethink the pro, you know, rethink coding as more of a method, method of communication, right? And it's, yeah, it's with devices, but not necessarily people, but it's not that different actually, that it might, it might sort of lead to much more of a sea change in how we think about that. I think the other thing that's interesting is just in our marketing team here at HubSpot, I think what we found over the past few years is that the more we hire people who maybe aren't good enough of a developer to like build our core product, but have some technical background, they turn out to generally be better marketers because there's there's so many little things that they can just do themselves without having to ask someone for else for help, and it makes them so much faster. They also just understand how a lot of the web and things like that work, that it gives them a lot more insights into their job. So we we've actually started hiring a lot of folks from our uh, technical support team, like our support engineers, into marketing. So they kind of you know have maybe a little bit of technical background, learn a ton more in their first kind of year here at HubSpot and then move over to the marketing team. And, th and those folks have worked out phenomenally well. Yes, that's absolutely what we've seen is this, you know, the skill set that we are giving people is one that doesn't just help you program, but it helps change the way you think about solving problems and working in a modern environment. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's huge. And I think that you're, you know, the, the skills that you guys are teaching are skills that are so in demand. I and mean, we talk about, you know, even though we've had, you know, a decent economic recovery, there's still pretty high unemployment in a lot of sectors. And for a lot of people, this is the kind of thing where, you know, but at the same time, we have, I don't know, 20, 30 more open jobs for engineers if we were able to find people that knew how to write code uh, that we're trying to hire for very aggressively right now. And I think that's true across, 
you know, the entire technology industry. So there's a whole sort of mismatch between the skills that people have and the skills that companies want. And I think that this is one of the ways that could have a ton of leverage to try to solve that problem. So I think it's really cool. Tell us a little bit maybe about let's change gears and talk about the growth, right? So you launch this thing, then what happens? What happens next? How do you get from zero to 25 million? Talk to us about, you know, at least the, the early stages of that. So I, I think we've been very lucky. Um, you know, we, we launched Code Academy. We thought we built something, built something that worked. And fortunately, it started taking off on its own. I think what we saw was an extraordinary level of interest from people online who realized that something that had traditionally been so complex and so difficult to learn all of a sudden was made easy. Uh, and, and I think that really helped it grow um, entirely by itself, um, which, which, you know, we've never paid to do user acquisition. We have never done advertising. And we've been lucky enough that building a good product really has generated word of mouth for us uh, and made it easy for the product to continue to grow. And so tell us more about that word of mouth. Is it literally word of mouth or do you have sort of ways that you've made it easy for your users to refer other people from within the product or things where you encourage them to kind of, you know, invite their friends into some sort of a group or things like that. Like there, a lot of people sort of, you know, that word of mouth thing can be literally word of mouth or it can be sort of, you know, referrals that are kind of enabled through the product. Talk to us about any, any of those things that you guys are doing. Yeah, I think um, we do a little bit of uh, formal um, word of mouth programs and as much as, you know, encouraging people to share things on Care Academy like badges and whatnot. Um, but, you know, to be honest, it really is just people uh, speaking to each other and recommending the product. And how much of that do you think was influenced by PR? Like, do you guys feel like you got a lot of coverage, um, you know, in the sort of first, you know, few million users as you started to grow and maybe people saw that coverage and that kind of uh, made them come to the site or was it literally like people talking to each other? Uh, I think the press coverage definitely was helpful as well. So I think for us, it's been a combination and it's kind of continued to um, snowball. Yeah. And so how, so you said you don't do any paid user acquisition, which is very interesting. What do you have any sort of like marketing investments that you're doing to grow the community? What, what are the types of things that you're investing in? So uh, we invest in, in kind of continuing to build a better product. We, we have a feature that we've been working on for a while uh, that we shipped last week that is focused around uh, actually helping people to build projects on the site. And so as they learn and they, they're building real projects, they're also hopefully sharing those projects with friends, working on those projects with others. So we build products that are um, relatively social and encourage people to work together. And that, in some cases, helps uh helps to drive growth as well. Okay. Now, is there anything different in growing to the first, you know, million or a couple million users versus growing from, you know, 10 million to 25 million? It, it feels like there might be some different dynamics there in terms of like, you know, what the, whether or not you're attracting early adopters versus sort of more mainstream users, do they have different needs? Do they interact with the product in a different way? Or are there different things you need to do because you're just operating at a different level of scale? And when you think about growth at that, growth, the things that you need to think about change as you get much bigger. How do people think about that? How do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we, what we need to focus on um, changes all the time. And so we've, we've really continually changed um, the, the product focus and the areas we work on and uh, the ability to ship things changes as well uh, when you grow larger. So every time you ship now, you know, when something breaks, uh, it breaks for a lot more people. So I think, you know, we're, we are cognizant of that 
struggle. Um, and we try to you know, both continue to ship uh, quickly uh, as well as make great products for our users and do that while, um, while really focusing on experimenting as well as making sure that our product is reliable for our learners. Now, you launched and still today, it's, it's free, right? How do you think about that as a decision? I mean, you know, what you're replacing was either going to classes, which are expensive, buying books, which, you know, a lot of those, especially the more technical books, not that cheap, right? So they're pretty expensive. You were replacing, you thought you were better than the things that people are already spending money for. How do you think about the decision to go free? What's, what do you feel like was the long-term plan? Because it's something that you guys, you know, you raise capital for, so investors expect some sort of return at some point in time, right? So how do you think about free and what was the sort of the idea of like how long it's going to be free for? And uh, tell us about that. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think we're believers in there being, uh, you know, major network effects in having the largest community of people learning the most important skills uh, in a digital economy. So we, we also believe that over time that content uh, ends up going to zero. So we, we are big believers that people will be able to access excellent content for free or low cost. And I think this has shown its way out in a lot of markets so far, or the content will be offered in a different way than it is now. Um, so for us, we figure by offering free basic access to, uh, co- to content, basically is the best way for us to provide um, marketing uh, for, for Code Academy and, and also to provide a really valuable service to people that eventually will help them do other things that we can generate revenue from. Okay, so let's shift from that to, let's take this as like a meta trend of, okay, you have basically created a new way for people to learn something that they were learning in a, in a different way beforehand. That's interesting. I will share a little secret with you. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old at home and yeah. I do, I'm not saving for college for them. I mean, I'm saving money. Like I have money in the bank. I'm doing okay. But I don't have like a college savings account set up for either one of them. Like, and there's some tax advantage ways you could do that. Because part of it is because, you know, 16 years from now, I have no idea what college is actually going to be like, right? Maybe they'll just go online and they'll go to, you know, Code Code Academy and like two or three others or something else. Or maybe you guys have expanded other topics or whatever. And they're just going to like you know, do a bunch of stuff there, earn some certificate and then go get a job or whatever. I don't know. Like, what do you, how do you see the trend in education overall? You know, I mean, here's somebody who, you know, you spent, you were at Columbia, you dropped out, you created this new thing. What, what's college going to be like in 15 years? Uh, you know, I, I think college will look very different than it does now, obviously. And, and the real hope for us is that college actually looks different for everyone that's going to an institution of higher learning. There are some people for whom vocational education will definitely be something that they should be getting. Some people, you know, where it will be more important for them to have a liberal arts education. And I think you know, what, what we would love is a world where people got the education that was right for them. And we didn't think of learning as a one size fits all where everyone absolutely has to go to college in order to be successful. Do you feel like a lot of these uh, for-profit schools are taking advantage of people and promising them that they're going to have this awesome career opportunity if they just get a college degree and then they're basically taking advantage of them because that degree that they're actually offering isn't necessarily worth a whole lot and they'd be much better off doing something like Code Academy or a combination of Code Academy and maybe some Khan Academy videos and some other stuff and just kind of up-leveling their skills and then, and then you know not having all the debt and things like that. Is that a way to think about it? 
Yeah, I mean, that definitely does happen. Um, and, and it's obviously quite frustrating when people are taking advantage of like that. So I, I think there's a mix of good actors and bad actors, obviously. Um, and we're still in the early days of seeing the for-profit vocational education industry get off the ground. And do you feel like the, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, hey, for some people that, you know, traditional liberal arts education might be right. I have one of those traditional liberal arts educations, um, but I have no idea what that's, I mean, isn't it possible that the traditional liberal arts education could also look totally different in 10 or 20 years? Absolutely. I mean, I think part of the challenge is that when you look at the way a university education has, uh, has existed over the past couple of decades, actually what has increased is not necessarily the spending on actual learning, but it's instead the spending on things around learning. So people are spending a lot of money on housing and on their sports teams. So uh, you know, it, it seems like universities have become this amalgamation of so many different components when actually what a lot of people should be focusing on is the education. And so that's really what our, why our focus is on actually providing a world-class education. Uh, and we're able to do that for far less than a university can because we're not focusing on offering all the other amenities that a university does as well. Okay, let's take that concept and say, okay, now let's apply it maybe to a company. So companies often have, uh, you know, uh, education, you know, tuition reimbursement funds available to employees to learn new skills, take some classes, maybe get a degree at night or weekends or things like that. Uh, a lot of times, you know, companies will even uh, sponsor someone and give them, you know, uh, tuition money to maybe take a year or two off and go get a degree, you know, like a master's degree or an MBA or something like that full time. The companies, many companies are doing a lot of things to develop their employees. Should companies be rethinking how they're deploying those dollars? Absolutely. I mean, I think those dollars are oftentimes applied in a way that is not quantitative and it's not outcomes driven. As a consequence, you see a lot of employees that are going to classes that, you know, perhaps don't generate the kinds of returns that they would be expecting. Um, so, I, you know, I think really what is happening in corporate learning is it drive towards accountability and understanding of what you're paying for. Okay. So you've got a bunch of executives listening to this podcast what so they're and they're like wow that's very provocative what you just said what like what do they do like today what are some of the things that they should think about how should they think about reshaping those programs that they have for employee development uh, i think they should focus on uh outcomes and uh they should focus on um building programs to actually help their employees get to the next stage and and the, the sad fact of corporate learning is that for the most part um, it just doesn't work because the, the managers are not actively involved. The, um, the users themselves and the employees themselves are not actively involved. The curriculum isn't great. And the outcomes aren't definitely clear. And so would that mean something like, okay, we have tuition reimbursement you know, money available for whatever, but rather than paying you for having taken a class, we're going to basically pay if you can show that you've learned X, Y, or Z skills, and these are the skills we've determined are important for success in this company. Is that the, sort of the way to start to think about it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome stuff. Um, all right. So we talked about the future of education. Oh, you were – okay. So you were on the Colbert Report uh, back in, I think, uh, 2013 or maybe a little while ago. So what was that like? What was it like sitting across the desk from him? Uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you say that with some hesitation. No, it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. I, I think obviously an experience like that is, is somewhat intimidating at times. Um, but, uh, but I think it was, it was really great to, to experience something you, you watch on TV, right? And in this yeah. particular uh, 
uh, opportunity. I'm a huge fan or was a huge fan of the show. Uh, and being on it was, was very surreal. And I feel like the other part about that it's intimidating is not only, you know, he's famous and you watch the show on TV and then all of a sudden you're going to be on it. But he has this way or had, you know, whatever that has still this way of asking questions. And the question is inherently funny. So it kind of makes you laugh. But then you go to think about it. You're like, oh, crap, that's actually a pretty challenging question. Right. I feel like he has this really interesting way of, of making challenging questions seem funny. But it's kind of like you still need to respond to the question. How much, like, yeah. how, did you have a lot of prep for that? Like, how did you prepare to go on that show? So I actually did not prepare at all. Um, Good which for you. Might have been a problem. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest preparation I did was to get very nervous. For it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think I was hoping uh, that it would go the way it did. And, and I was you know, lucky that it turned out pretty well. Cool. Uh, final question. If you hadn't started Codecademy, what would you be doing? Uh, that is a great question. I don't know, to be honest. I haven't thought about it a lot. Um, I think that the real thing that I try to do is find a thing that is kind of the convergence of real impact um, and something where I feel like my skills are leveraged to impact as many people as possible in the best way possible. And, and I think that's what I've fortunately been able to do with GoJatomy. Uh, so I don't think a ton about what I would be doing if I wasn't doing this. Perfect. Well, it sounds like you're doing something that you love and it's having a big impact and that's fantastic. So Zach, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was certainly great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. Uh, if you enjoyed it, we'd love to get you to leave us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. Uh, and if you want to chat about this episode, share any feedback or suggest future guests, uh, we have a discussion uh, set up at inbound.org slash growth. That's inbound.org slash growth. Thanks a ton for joining us, and we hope you'll be listening again soon.